The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. I think back to Bond Street, I started the business, I was 25 years old, right? The very first hire we made was an amazing guy named Jerry Weiss, who was the head of small business risk at Citibank. I think he was 57 years old when he joined us. We didn't have payroll set up and he joined us in my apartment, right? He had been underwriting small business loans longer than I'd been alive at that point in time. And I think he really kind of set the tone and the culture of the firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. And I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with David Haber, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, one of the largest venture capital funds in the world, founded in 2009 by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. Based in New York City, David focuses exclusively on fintech investing. Before A16Z, he founded Bond Street, a New York fintech that aimed to transform small business lending in the U.S. Bond Street was eventually acquired by Goldman Sachs in 2017. We discuss company building lessons from his experience at Bond Street and why he always looks for people with humble confidence, the power of storytelling and why David believes effective storytelling is crucial for entrepreneurs and investors, the future of fintech around the world, key qualities of a good venture capital investor, a look inside A16Z and the vision of Mark and Ben for the firm, and just a lot more. All right, David, welcome to Fintech Leaders. It's good to see you. I think this is the the first time we're chatting over video conference. The other times have been in person. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Miguel. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. It's been a long time coming that I've wanted to host you. So I'm glad we're we're having this conversation. I guess let's start from the beginning. Let's talk about a little bit about your career because you've been in the financial world for a long time and you've seen a lot of aspects of it. You, you've been an entrepreneur. You were doing several roles, interesting roles at Goldman. Now you're at A16Z for using a fintech. Maybe guide us through your career and how it led you to this role. Yeah, sure. I mean, the honest answer is it's been a little bit circuitous and not always planned, obviously. But you're right. I've been on sort of, you know, a bunch of different sides of the table. So so I actually studied biochemistry in college and initially thought I was going to be a doctor. So my first kind of real job was working for an amazing biotech entrepreneur named Rory Riggs. He was a fascinating guy who was the head of M&A at Pete Weber in the 70s and 80s at a time when a lot of the early biotech companies were going public. He left, started a few biotech companies that he took public. He started the largest billboard company in Japan, ran a railroad, 
and then started a, a giant private equity business called Royalty Pharma. And he sort of invented the asset class of buying pharmaceutical royalties in the mid-90s, and that's now a, a giant business, a publicly traded company. Most importantly, he was just an incredible first boss and kind of really pushed us to debate him, you know, early on. And it was a very unusual kind of first job out of college. So that was sort of the beginning. You know, I always had sort of a bunch of, you know, business ideas. And he was always like, I'll see you, let's do it, and I'll sit on your board. There was nothing I was sort of yet banging the table for. And so ended up moving back to Boston and joining a venture capital firm called Spark in 2011. And I was basically the one kind of non-partner, you know, at the firm at the time. You know, my job was to go run around and, you know, find interesting companies to invest in, obviously. They had been pretty successful, mostly consumer internet investors at that point. Had done, you know, I'd seeded Tumblr and put a bunch of money to Twitter when there were 10 employees. We wrote the first check in Oculus when I was there. So did a little bit of that, mostly focused on online marketplaces, kind of did a little bit of enterprise software. But it's really when I first started kind of going down the fintech rabbit hole back in 2011. And yeah, I mean, ultimately ended up helping, you know, source and see Plaid and Orchard and a bunch of other companies when I was there. In 2012 and 2013, and really helped them open their New York office with one of the the GPs, Mo Koifan, at the time. Once I had something I was particularly passionate about, I kind of knew I needed to leave and, and go build a business. And so I ended up leaving at the end of 2013 to start a fintech company called Bond Street with my friend Peyton, who had been running engineering at Venmo. They had just been acquired by Braintree and PayPal. And so full amount of that business to, to start the company, which was in the small business lending space. And it was at a time when you know, I was running around New York again as a young kind of VC, mostly meeting with technology companies, but often bumping into fast-growing physical products businesses or services companies that weren't rated for venture capital, but in many cases were doing millions of dollars a year in, in revenue, were profitable, were growing, and yet couldn't raise bank financing. And then as you dug into the problem space, like the workload for actually underwriting and, and sort of originating a small business law really hadn't changed for, for decades. And at that point, again, in, in 2013, a lot of the data that we thought we would need to sort of understand the financial health of small businesses at that point was just becoming available online to the API. So Intuit had just launched the QuickBooks API, but also Xero and Stripe and Harvest to Braintree and Expensify. Kind of these, you know, counting, invoicing, and payments companies were kind of moving from being single-player products to becoming kind of platforms. And, you know, importantly, the IRS also at that point had just started accepting e-signature so you could get access to a business's tax transcript data programmatically. We, we knew we could write integrations into the credit bureaus to get access to credit data. And then again, we had just seeded Plaid. So I knew that you could get access to bank transaction data, understand kind of the cash flow dynamics you know, of these small businesses too. And so the idea was, how do we deliver a significantly better customer experience to the entrepreneur, You know, let them sort of auth access to their variety of business accounts, and ultimately get a decision to them you know, on a loan up to a million dollars in, you know, in minutes or hours as opposed to weeks or months, right? Top business <laughs> in retrospect, which we we can get into, but, you know, we built an incredible team, which is what I'm most proud of. Many of them are now actually fintech entrepreneurs, which is awesome to see. And then we sold the business to Goldman, as you mentioned, in, in 2017 and got merged into what became Marcus, which was really kind of Goldman's, you know, first foray to consumer banking. You know, my co-founder Peyton inherited something like 70 engineers, I had a more kind of amorphous role at, you know, doing kind of strategy in M&A, but it was a really kind of interesting opportunity because I mean, again, I never really worked at a big company before. And we went from, you know, 40 people to 40,000 people overnight, very much not obviously the CEO of Goldman Sachs, but it was kind of an opportunity to run around the building and map the place. And I started, you know, firing off emails to 
Marty Chavez, who was the CFO and the heads of banking and asset management, just sort of saying, hey, I'm here, would be helpful. And, you know, ended up getting an email from a, an interesting woman named Stephanie Cohen, who had just been promoted to be the chief strategy officer of the firm. And she reached out basically with a note that said, you know, hey, I'm trying to get better connected in the venture ecosystem. I hear you can help. And I'm like, well, that's easy. And so we kind of bonded by me running around New York, you know, taking her to go meet, you know, folks like USB or First Round or Ribbit or QED or, or Andreessen, really just sort of opening my network to her. And then first of reciprocating internally, pulling me more into kind of FinTech and strategy conversations. And at some point she's like, you know, write a job description, like come work with me. And so I moved into kind of the executive office doing, you know, in a kind of strategy capacity, mostly helping kind of lead technology strategy across the organization and the different divisions, working closely with the CIO and CTO of the firm. But then our team did kind of firm M&A and I also was involved in, in some investing as well, like in Carta and, and Wallon in our Argentina. So yeah, was able to sort of see the kind of full service area of the firm, which was, which was fascinating. And then, yeah, ultimately ended up joining Andreessen in July of 2021 as a, a general partner on the fintech team. Awesome fintech investments around the world, but also really helped plant the flag here in New York City, which has been just an amazing opportunity and, and a great experience so far. Well, one thing that is super interesting to me is you helped source Plaid for your initial firm, and then you guys pulled the trigger, invested in but. I mean, Plaid now is one of the most well-known fintechs out there. They've become an integral part of the ecosystem. How was that initial meeting? How, you know, what do you recall about first meeting Zach, Will, I guess, and, and the team? Yeah, but it was interesting. So honestly, it kind of goes back to 2009. My eventual co-founder, Peyton, and I had just met, and we were really kicking around business ideas. And it was at a time, if, if you recall, when Foursquare was very popular in New York and people would, you know, check in and they were building this kind of interesting ad network, essentially off of check-in data. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like a check-in is really a proxy for transactional intent. Right. And, and I said, okay, well, instead of using check-in data, why don't you actually use the, somebody's stated, you know, preferences, which is, is their actual transaction data. And so back in 2009, Peyton and I tried to go to Yodli. We tried to go to American Express to get access to transaction data. Again, mostly with the idea of trying to build a geo-targeted ad network so that I could understand, okay, Miguel doesn't just like sushi, but he likes sushi in the Lower East Side and in the West Village, right? And then based on your spending data, I can actually target you with ads, you know, specific to your preferences. Yodli, you know, asked us for like $50,000 and they have this like shitty not an API. Amex was like, you know, what are you doing here, you kids? I was like 21 at the time. And so we kind of shelled that idea, honestly, and, you know, remained friends. Peyton, as I mentioned, ended up going to run engineering at Venmo, which was built off Yodley at the time. And, you know, I ended up meeting Zach and Will, and initially they were, they had a bunch of different, actually, consumer product ideas. And I remember the very first meeting, I was like, what if you, like, geo-targeted these transactions? And Zach, like, spins around the computer, and they have his map basically people's real-time transactional data in New York City that would show kind of where people were spending money. And, you know, ended up sending a note to Peyton being like, hey, I just met this interesting company called Plat.io. They built this interesting product, but also importantly, this infrastructure that was sort of aggregating transaction data. And, you know, he took the meeting, thought it was quite interesting. And ultimately, Venmo became one of the Plat's first customers. And so they swapped out Yodli, integrated Plat, 
And I think contracting took a while, but it became one of the biggest customers for, I think, the first three or four years. You know, Mo, who was at Spark at the time as a GP, was ultimately the one to kind of write the check. But I think I sort of, to some degree, had a little bit of a prepared mind for what you can build off of that transaction data. Obviously, not understanding all that was to come and, and you know, 150% of the credit goes to, to Zach and Will for building an amazing platform and and really kind of catalyzing this incredible, you know, fintech ecosystem that was kind of built on, on top of this kind of enabling infrastructure. So it was just, you know, interesting timing and an amazing kind of story and outcome that's honestly still being written. And then it wasn't an obvious investment, right? And sometimes it requires exactly what you said, a prepared mind to be like, oh, I understand this problem. And talking about Bond Street, since the days of Bond Street, SMB digital banking or digital financial services have evolved significantly, right? Looking back, what do you wish you would have done differently? A lot of things. You know, it's easy to look back and, and see all the mistakes you made, which we made, you know, plenty of. Look, I think there were a few things we did well. As I said, we we built an incredible team, which is what I'm by far and away most proud of. You know, Eddie, for example, was our COO, is now the head of global head of risk for Stripe. He's the head of Stripe New York. You know, I think overseeing several hundred people. Mahima started a fintech company called Cocoon that Index put, I think, $20 million into, became one of the heads of Square Capital. Like, you can go down the list. It's just an incredible group of people who kind of spun out of this small company to go start a new thing. So I think, great, you know, good, good job on talent. We did a very good job, actually, on capital markets. You know, we never raised a ton of equity. We raised $11.5 million in equity, but $900 million in debt capacity. We had raised a hundred million dollar debt facility before we raised our Series A, and we had only raised a million and a half dollars in seed equity. So I think, yeah, again, thumbs up on capital work. It's we underwrote good credit, which is what gave Jeffries and and a large mutual fund the confidence to kind of continue giving us access to their balance sheets and, and debt capacity. Our vision, you know, ultimately for the business was to be more than just a lender. It was to become sort of the what I would call like the financial advocate for the small businesses we served. You know, really with the insight that. Again, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially small business owners, start their companies because they're passionate about their product or their service or their craft, not because they want to be the CFO of their coffee shop or their digital agency, right? And so how can we sort of help abstract away the complexity and sort of brain damage burning the financial part of their lives? I think in retrospect to your question, the wedge product that we started with was probably the wrong one. You know, we started with term loans, which had a one to three year duration, you know, that ranged from $10,000 in size all the way up to a million dollars. So we had people borrowing on average about $150,000, you know, primarily again for growth financing, really to, you know, open up a new location or buy an important piece of equipment or hire employees or refinance maybe expensive credit card debt or, or merchant cash advance. That product had great unit economics, but had a very kind of limited trip. It was a very infrequent and very considered transaction. And so what happened was, and that ultimately the biggest challenge and the thing we didn't do particularly well, in my opinion, was find cost-effective ways to scale, you know, customer acquisition and really find people. We didn't have a unique advantage in finding people at that transactional point of intent, right? You, you think small businesses, and it, it is a very large population, but getting in front of that small business owner at the specific point in time when they need $150,000 loan to open that new location, and with a relatively, you know, our prices were pretty upmarket, you know, fairly low interest rates, which meant that the sort of credit box was fairly narrow. And so the funnel really narrows 
to a very specific point in time, both that somebody needs your credit, you know, criteria and needs that is ready to borrow $150,000 in that moment to open that notification. And so the cost of acquiring and getting in front of the customer at that specific time was very challenging. And so I think a lot of the lessons of the last five plus years in fintech were, and a lot of the successes we've seen were people who've started with a financial product or honestly, ideally software, some sort of wedge that has near 100% approval rate. So ideally, anybody with a credit card can become your customer. If it's not software, it's a financial product like a checking account or a debit card or even a credit card where, you know, the vast, vast majority of people who apply, you can approve. And then you build this sort of much larger user base, understanding their kind of financial history of financial profile, and then layer in higher LTD products over time, understanding both the transactional intent and their approvability. And so... I've read them a little bit about this. Again, most of the stuff I read is like mistakes that I made at Bond Street. But one of them was was this article about leading with software when building a lending business. And it really informs kind of how I think about investing today, which is bias primarily towards fintech companies that lead with software, what I would call like a network, as opposed to leading with a financial product. And it, in my mind, it's just easier to commoditize a financial product and ultimately, you know, compete, have to compete on rate or, you know, distribution, which is very difficult to do as a startup and far more difficult for a bank or a large financial institution to compete on technology or a workflow or, or certainly in a business that's building a network effect. So happy to dive into any of that, but that, that's sort of, you know, a lot of the lessons from that experience. I mean, a lot of what you've described also applies to embedded fintech products. Sometimes you can lead with software, but the software is not yours but you were embedding yourself in other providers. Do you spend a lot of time looking at that specific vertical? I think it, you're right. Like it solves part of the equation, which is embedding yourself at that transactional point of intent, right? And, uh, you know, anytime there is a transaction, there's an opportunity to layer in a financial product. So you've seen a lot of people obviously embed, you know, financing at, at, at point of sale or, you know, I check out to finance some sort of transaction or marketplace or e-commerce site. You're still ultimately competing, I think, primarily on sort of a cost of capital gain. You've sold to, to some degree the distribution, but you're right, like it's not your distribution. So I think that's where it gets challenging. Some of the stuff that I've invested in so far has been, you know, vertical software businesses who, again, are leading with a workflow problem. For example, I invested in this very interesting healthcare and fintech company called Juniper, which is building billing software for behavioral health clinics. But their insight was that highly recurring forms of healthcare, you know, if you're seeing a, a, a doctor a hundred times a year because you're going, you know, you're a patient in an autism clinic, let's say, but they power now some of the largest autism clinics in the country, you know, they started by solving a workflow problem, which is submitting healthcare invoices to insurance providers. And they sort of built a bunch of technology to automate that, you know, claim submission and deal with all the revenue cycle and adjudication of processing claims and ensuring that those providers get, get reimbursed. And they get paid, you know, three to 5% for doing that, just the board flow of actually taking on the revenue cycle management for these practices. What's really interesting from a fintech perspective, however, is that they have visibility to 100% of that business's cash flow, right? They're processing every invoice to, to every insurance company. They understand statistically the probability of repayment on every service that they provide and the challenge that a lot of these providers have is that it can take 90 days to get reimbursed. 
And so it just positions them really well to push a financing opportunity to the provider, as opposed to hoping that they're going to apply and pull, you know, financing. And importantly, you're not getting negatively selected because they're not just factoring the one invoice that they're not sure they're going to get paid on. You know, you can see a hundred percent of their, of their invoices and either finance all of them or selectively to yourself, choose to, you know, which ones to pay us. And so again, it's a distribution advantage with the software product, but also understanding the approvability and the transactional point of intent. Yeah. And in fact, you, you've written about this. You, you've written about the intersection of healthcare or health tech and fintech. So I'm guessing it's not just about one company, right? You're looking at that intersection quite a bit. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit more about that and how you see those two verticals crossing and evolving. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite lines, which I, I genuinely believe is that opportunities live between fields of expertise. And I just find myself enjoying living in those intersections, right? For me, that's often meant, by the way, between being an investor and an entrepreneur, you know, or between fintech and other categories. And it's one of the honestly, one of the reasons why I've loved investing in fintech over the years, because I've always viewed it in many ways more as a horizontal than as a vertical. And, you know, our partner, Alex Angela, has read a lot about every company's become a fintech company. And Alex has written about how fintech in many ways is becoming kind of a business model, you know, embedded into other other products or other services, as opposed to a standalone thing itself. So, you know, historically technology companies would aggregate a large audience and generate ad revenue or have some sort of commerce transaction. Increasingly, obviously, you know, FinTech is the kind of the third level of that monetization stool, enabling these vertical software businesses to drive engagement or retention or, or LTV. Healthcare has been a really interesting category. And I think one of the kind of fun opportunities here in Andreessen in that we have folks with such deep domain expertise in each of these different domains. And so Julie, you and I, Julie runs our health tech practice here at Andreessen, have just had a, like an amazing kind of collaboration, you know, bringing kind of both of our depths of experience as entrepreneurs. She was a health tech entrepreneur, you know, I started fit the company, as well as kind of the operating platforms behind us to kind of look at this intersection. And it's been really fun to kind of, again, tap into her deep expertise and knowledge and, you know, experience understanding the complexities and regulatory issues in the healthcare space. And then vice versa, sharing a lot of our experiences, understanding data and the nuances and playbooks that we've begun seeing in, you know, in fintech. And many of which, again, have become applied to vertical software. All of those same playbooks are now coming out there. And so I just think there's a, t- a tremendous amount to do here. And, you know, I think we, we probably made over a dozen investments that you could qualify to some degree between, yeah, this intersection of healthcare and fintech, but it's becoming kind of a big area of focus for us. And I think you'll see us do quite a bit more. You have a global role because I, I know you've invested definitely outside of the US, but also within the US. Do you have some sort of mechanism to deciding the areas where you're going to focus on? the regions, right? How, how do you view your role? And also you're based in New York. So I'm guessing you see a lot of what's going on in New York City. Yeah. You know, that, that's been a kind of a, again, a fun opportunity in joining, you know, in Dresden. I mean, the firm, despite its size, historically was not just US centric, it was fairly West Coast centric. And so when I joined the firm at that point, hadn't hired a general partner outside of the area. So I've always been you know, passionate about kind of helping push out the program in the firm you know, which we've done, you know, certainly, you know, here in New York City. And I think in, in FinTech in particular, it's obviously just become such a global phenomenon. And some of the most valuable and, and kind of 
the best fintech talent exists around the world. And so my feeling is we should keep going. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time deliberately, you know, the last year and a half traveling to places like Europe. You know, I was there probably six or seven times last year, you know, just kind of getting enmeshed in the ecosystem in, in London and Paris and Berlin and others, just again, trying to understand kind of those markets, meet kind of influential entrepreneurs, solo GPC funds, just to, again, understand the nuances of those ecosystems. And I think part of that is really driven by, again, scaled fintech companies who are now spawning the next generation talent, right? You know, companies like Adyen or Revolut or TransferWise or Trade Republic, lots of the list can go on, now have kind of a new generation of, you know, product and engineering leader who has now seen what kind of world-class fintech business looks like at scale and are now excited to kind of go off and start their new companies. And so that's kind of been a primary kind of driver of our interest in that in that region. The other kind of region that we've been spending a lot of time in is in, in Latin America, which we've you know, talked about a lot, you know, and had, again, had had some experience kind of investing and in seeing kind of the, the growth of fintech in that market. You know, Seema, who is now on our team, uh, was at Goldman at the time. I'd introduced her to one of my best friends, Pierre Paolo Barrieri, who was the founder of Walla. And so she led the Series B in, in Walla, you know, which is probably back in 20, I think, 18. And so it's just been fun to kind of watch him, you know, execute in, the, in that market. And then through that lens, just see kind of all the explosive growth that's happening, you know, across Latin America, really pulling people kind of into the financial system for the very first time. Uh, and then obviously in countries like Brazil, you know, Nubank is maybe the most successful, you know, neobank and, and kind of fintech company in the world and just sort of sets a North Star for what's possible. And so, and then we have a really talented kind of young investor in our team named, named Gabriel Vasquez, who, um, you know, focuses primarily on Latin America and he's just done an incredible job and kind of hustling in that ecosystem and befriending a lot of the kind of top founders and any two investors in those markets. And so I think I give him you know, 90% of the credit for kind of sourcing great investments in that region, but it's something we're spending a lot more time on and, and are very bullish on long term. So, David, let's talk a little bit about A16Z, because obviously it's a well-known brand. Every entrepreneur, investor, and also even outsiders, industry outsiders, they're going to have their opinion of what they think goes on within A16Z. But how about you You give us a, a view from from inside, you know, Tell us a bit about the firm and, you know, what would outsiders be surprised to learn about Andreessen? So one of my lenses, as I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do was, was really this notion of wanting to help build a firm more than run a fund. And ultimately that came from a reflection that I feel best somewhere between being an investor and an entrepreneur. And again, a lot of ways to be successful, but through my lens, the primary sort of objective function of a fund is how do I generate the most returns with the fewest people in the shortest amount of time possible? A firm is two things. It's delivering exceptional returns, but it's also about trying to build a source of compounding advantage, right? In, in many ways, like an entrepreneur would think about building a moat. And in my mind, Andreessen and, and Mark and Ben in particular were kind of like the archetypes and kind of the, the pinnacle of like firm building. And I would say that's been very true. Like it, it really feels more like a company than an investment fund internally. And I think a large part that's because it's run by entrepreneurs, right? I think you honestly, if you, if you have market bet on this, in this podcast, I think you asked them, are you an investor or you're an entrepreneur? I bet you they would say we're hundred percent entrepreneurs who happen to be running an investment firm, right? And I think that that sort of culture 
permeates the entire organization. A lot of the you know partners of the firm had built and scaled large companies were founders of of these businesses. And so it sort of drives, again, through my observation, kind of a, a relentlessness to be self-reflective, to you know, ask what we could be doing better, to tear things down and rebuild, to experiment and push, you know, real chips on the table and take risk in a way that again, entrepreneurs do. And so that that has been, I think, a really special quality. And I think that really starts with the two of them. I think the other thing that's been surprising and and I think it's again one of the things that makes the firm special, in my opinion, is just how deeply evolved Mark and Ben are individually. I think a lot of people might assume because of their success, honestly, even before Adrian, that, you know, they might not be as engaged. That could not be further from the truth. Like, again, in my observation, Ben is very much like the CEO of A16Z, more, I don't know that he would call himself that, as sort of like the chairman and chief strategist, but they are, they are running the firm day to day. Like they are, like the ambition and intensity starts with them and then permeates down through, through the organization. And so, again, I think that's one of the kind of core core reasons the firm has been been quite successful. And again, I can something people would be, you know, fairly surprised from from the outset. One of the most important aspects of building a firm is bringing good talent on board. You mentioned that you're proud that you guys did this at Bond Street. You've had to hire a couple of people for your current role. Tell us about that process for you. Do you have any interviewing tap tactics and anything that has proven to work well for you over the years? I think back to Bond Street, I started the business, I was 25 years old, right? The very first hire we made was an amazing guy named Jerry Weiss, who was the head of small business risk at Citibank. I think he was 57 years old when he joined us. We didn't have payroll set up and he joined us in my apartment, right? He had been underwriting small business loans longer than I'd been alive at that point in time. And I think he really kind of set the tone and the culture of the firm because of that, because he didn't show up to Bond Street saying, ah, you know, these kids, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Like, you know, I have all the experience and I'll, I'll, I'll teach them. He obviously recognized the value that he was going to deliver to the business, but also I think importantly had kind of the humility to understand that he was going to both learn from us, but also learn from the experience of building a business for the very first time. And that sense of what I would call humble competence is something that we always optimize for and look for in, in every employee that we hired, you know, at Bond Street. And it's something that I find that I look for, you know, certainly here at Andreessen. And I think many of the most successful people at the firm have kind of that quality. I think the second piece, which is again, hard to sort of quantify, but it's just what I call like, do they have the fire, right? Do they have this sort of relentless energy, relentless curiosity? Are they generous with their network and their relationships? You know, one of my kind of guiding, I guess, life philosophies, but it served me well, certainly in business is this notion of like, the karmic boomerang of sort of wanting to put more out into the world than you expect to receive. And I think just sort of helping people with that expectation is one of the fastest ways to sort of engender goodwill and and ultimately like and like in the long term pays significant dividends. And so I I sort of look for that quality certainly as well. And just sort of again that intensity, the hunger, you know, the generosity, the curiosity. And again, this sort of sense of humble confidence. And I think those qual if you have all those qualities, I think it's an incredible recipe. And you know, I've, I've been very fortunate to work with a number of people who've had all of them, and I think we'll continue to go on to great success in my opinion. And you've partially answered already this question, but zooming in specifically for venture capital investors, 
having been both a junior investor back at Spark and now, you know, more senior at A16Z and having worked, collaborated, co-invested with several other investors in the industry, what makes a good investor? Well, I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> Look, I can tell you from an entrepreneur's perspective, like what you really wanted was somebody to have deep conviction in what you're building, right? And and honestly, not care what other people thought. It was the most frustrating thing in the world as an entrepreneur raising money when you would talk to investors who would say, who else is in the round? Or I'll invest if, you know, so-and-so invests. Like, just make up your own mind. And I think having sort of a... Again, conviction in your own ideas, you know, conviction in the entrepreneur, conviction in the thesis, and be willing to kind of plant the flag and be, again, in, in often non-consensus, and then the hard part is being right, really, I think, are the are the ways that you can be incredibly successful in, in investing. It's, it's not easy doing any of those things. Obviously, I, again, I'm still trying to learn and figure out how to be an investor, but but the people I've admired most are, are, were often the investors who had kind of a clarity of thought, had deep conviction, moved quickly, and, you know, won in large part because of those qualities. Um, and then when they were proven out to be right far earlier than anybody sort of understood, like that's when those sort of, you know, exponential outcomes are created. And it sounds like you also have to avoid being afraid to be wrong because, you know, you are inevitably sometimes. 100%. Totally. I mean, that is venture, Right. No, no. And that's also the entrepreneurial experience. It's putting yourself out there and trying to figure it out. Good stuff. Well, David, this has been a great conversation. I can't believe it's 37 minutes have already flown by, but I'm so glad that we did this. Before I let you go, what has you the most excited about the future of our industry for the you know years ahead? Honestly, it's driven by the people. Like That's what's really keeps me incredibly optimistic and, and so excited and feel privileged to be in this role. It's just that I get to work with, you know, incredible entrepreneurs who are building the future. And, you know, I've skewed probably the last year and a half since I joined to really invest very early. Most of what I've done historically has been seed. And so it's just being in the trenches, working with these entrepreneurs, helping them sort of find product market fit, build their teams, build the culture, build a product. I think that's just what's so exciting. And again, what feeds kind of both the, the investor in me, but also kind of the entrepreneur in me. And yeah, it's a privilege to kind of be in this role and work with those entrepreneurs and also work with great investors like yourself. So yeah, really appreciate you having me on the program and yeah, excited to chat more. Yeah, no, this has been great. I think your perspective is super valuable. People are going to be interested in, in learning about what you are thinking about and it goes both ways. Always enjoy our conversations. So let's keep it going. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with David from A16Z. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.